Welcome back to the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today we're going to be talking all about anxiolytic and hypnotic drugs. It's going to be a really great episode. We've got a lot planned for today. But as always, before we get started, make sure to go on ninjanerd.org, grab your notes, your illustrations, and really dig into what we've got covered today all on anxiolytic and hypnotic agents. Let's go ahead and turn it over to Zach now, where he's going to be kind of starting this discussion off on the pathophysiology of anxiety and insomnia, which is really what we're going to be treating today with our anxiolytics and hypnotic agents. Yes, yeah, so when we talk about the pathophysiology of anxiety, really, I think it's important to remember that it's really primarily due to limbic system dysfunction. So it's all those big bad nuclei that are part of your limbic system, amygdala, hippocampus, hypothalamus, so many different structures are really kind of involved in this. But when we talk about this, anxiety disorders really kind of come down to very, very important ones that are things like generalized anxiety disorder, panic attack disorder, social anxiety disorders, phobias, things that actually should be treated. Now, patients naturally are going to have anxiety. That's a normal response to a lot of different stressors in life. But it's whenever it's becoming uncontrollable, altering their ability to perform normal daily activities is when we really need to be able to address this. So when this limbic system dysfunction occurs, really the problem with this is that the limbic system has a very profound effect on our sympathetic nervous system. And so obviously some of you who have experienced anxiety before, when your sympathetic nervous system goes on hyperdrive, you have this kind of fear slash apprehension type of response where sometimes you kind of have a, a lot of systemic side effects. So your cardiovascular system becomes amped up, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up. You may feel that in the sense of palpitations. Um, sometimes your respiratory rate can kind of go up. Your muscle spindles can become super kind of activated. This can cause like tremors. Um, and also your sweat glands may become hyperactivated and you start kind of experiencing a lot of diaphoresis. So these are some of the signs of kind of sympathetic uh, hyperactivity due to limbic system dysfunction. Now, really, the question that you have to ask is, is what's causing the limbic system dysfunction? Why is the limbic system on this hyperdrive telling our sympathetic nervous system to go into hyperdrive? And really, that's due to two primary neurotransmitters that are coming down and causing this problem. And this happens to be whenever a patient's having this low GABA activity. So they don't have a lot of gamma aminobutric acid that they're producing. Because GABA is designed to be able to kind of just hyperpolarize and inhibit action potentials being produced by your limbic system. So they don't hyperactivate your sympathetic response. But if you have a little GABA activity, you don't have as much of that hyperpolarization. You don't suppress the limbic system. And therefore, you kind of have a lot of this sympathetic activation and the fear, apprehension, and sympathetic responses. The other neurotransmitter that's really, really key here is serotonin. Serotonin is another big one. There's this low levels of serotonin that also contribute to anxiety. And the thought behind this is that sometimes serotonin, whenever it's lower, low serotonin leads to uh, kind of a less GAB activity. So serotonin normally can stimulate GABergic neurons. But if you have a less serotonin, you don't stimulate those GABergic neurons. And if you have less GABA, you don't inhibit or suppress the limbic system. And so the limbic system starts kind of having this dysfunction, hyperactivity, stimulates your sympathetic response, and then you devere all that fear and apprehension kind of cardiovascular effects that we talked about. So that's really when it comes down to it, the pathophysiology of anxiety, Rob. All right. So if I had to give a just a one sentence recap, really the problem here is the neurotransmitters. The neurotransmitters are all fricked up. <laughs> and this is what's happening. That's, that's it, really. It's GABA 
and it's serotonin low. Yep, that's right. That's really kind of the basis of the pathophysiology of anxiety. And that's why when we talk a little bit later about anxiolytics, we're really going to come up with drugs that maybe increase GABA activity or increase serotonin activity. But that's the basis, yes, Rob, of uh, the pathophysiology of anxiety. That sounds great. So before we go ahead and move on to the next topic, we have to now cover, Zach, just a quick pathophys of insomnia. Absolutely. So insomnia is basically this inability to maybe fall asleep or maintain sleep. So that's a really kind of challenging thing. And so the mechanism kind of behind why insomnia occurs is it's really due to very specific structures that control our sleep and our wakefulness. And some of the big ones that I think are really, really important here are what's called your ventrolateral um, preoptic nucleus. This is a nucleus that's present in the hypothalamus. And this is a nucleus that really is designed to be able to promote sleep. There's a bunch of other nuclei that are a part of like our reticular formation. There's so many of these. The most important ones that studies have shown that are part of our reticular formation is the tuberomammillary nucleus and the lateral hypothalamic nucleus. Okay. But your reticular formation is designed to be able to promote arousal and wakefulness, whereas the ventral lateral preoptic nucleus is designed to be able to promote sleep. So there's some type of dysfunction between these structures. And what may be the reason? for that. Well, one of the th concepts here is that maybe if the VLPO that's supposed to induce sleep is not doing that, there's a dysfunction of the VLPO. It's inactive, if you will, right? And then the reticular formation, if it's supposed to promote arousal and wakefulness, that son of a gun's on hyperdrive. It's hyperactive. And so what's the reason of this and the reason why the patients can't actually kind of fall asleep or maintain their sleep? Well, really it comes down to what is the thing that's causing the VLPO to become inactive. And really the reason for this is something called low GABA, you know, low gamma amino butric acid. Wait, that was a problem for anxiety. Yes. It also can be a problem with insomnia, believe it or not. So whenever there's low amounts of GABA, what this does is, is this basically kind of causes the problems where the reticular formation is just super activated. Okay. The next thing is low melatonin. Melatonin is super important. You know, your pineal gland makes melatonin, right? Melatonin is supposed to then tell a structure called the suprachiasmatic nucleus to kind of control your VLPO. Well, if you have low levels of melatonin, you're not going to tell your suprachiasmatic nucleus to keep your VLPO active. And so your VLPO is then is actually going to be very inactive in that particular situation. So that's another particular reason. The next one is high orexin activity. So high levels of this neuropeptide called orexin is actually been shown again to uh, basically keep the VLPO in this inactive state and keep the reticular formation on hyperdrive. And the last one here is these very high levels of histamine. Histamine is another thing that the reticular formation releases onto the VLPO and again, keeps it inactive and keeps the reticular formation super hyperactive. And that's the problem with this disease is that again, there is a super inactivity of the VLPO and he's supposed to promote sleep. You will no longer sleep. And then the reticular formation is on hyperdrive. It's supposed to be able to promote wakefulness. So they'll be awake and won't be able to fall asleep or maintain sleep. So that's the basic pathophysiology of insomnia, Rob. All right. So one sentence recap. We have an issue with the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the reticular formation, the ventrolateral preoptic nucleus. And why is this all happening? Because of low GABA, low melatonin, high orexin, and high histamine. 
Now let's go ahead and move on into the mechanism of action of anxiolytics. Yeah, so that's perfect recap there. So if we think about anxiolytics, as Rob said, the problem is the neurotransmitters is low GABA and low serotonin. So why don't we try to come up with drugs that will basically increase GABA or increase serotonin? And so the things that are going to be able to increase maybe GABA in the sense of increasing the activity similar to GABA is something I can call GABA agonists. So GABA acts on a receptor called the GABA-A receptor. And normally what it does is when GABA binds onto that receptor, opens up these chloride ion channels and allows chloride to flow into the cells. And this is generally going to flow into particular cells that it targets. So if in this case, the limbic system, it's going to flow into limbic system neurons and basically hyperpolarize them. This basically means it's going to inhibit them. They won't produce these action potentials that amp up your sympathetic nervous system. So that's the beauty of these drugs. And so this is where I'm going to give something called GABA-A receptor agonists. These could be things like benzodiazepines, which are very, very common drugs. And there's so many of these. So if you guys want to remember these, there's things like short acting ones like midazolam, triazolam. Those are something to consider. I'd say midazolam is the more commonly utilized one. Then you get into intermediate acting benzodiazepines. This is the commonly used Used ones that we see all the time in patients with anxiety, such as alprazolam, lorazepam, oxazepam, to some degree temazepam. But the last one is the long-acting drugs, and these are also commonly utilized, such as clonazepam and diazepam. So again, if I had to kind of highlight which ones are the most commonly utilized in anxiolysis, it is definitely going to be alprazolam, lorazepam, oxazepam, clonazepam, and diazepam. Those are by far the most commonly utilized ones in anxiety. And again, what do they do? They bind on to the alpha-2 subunit. Very, very important to remember that, guys. The alpha-2 subunit of the GABA-A receptor open that puppy up, and they increase the frequency at which chloride ions rush into the limbic system nuclei and suppress that limbic system dysfunction and suppress the anxiety response. So that's a really important important thing to remember for these. The other one uh, of the other types of drugs are barbiturates. And barbiturates, we really don't utilize these anymore. The reason why is they're super toxic. So they also bind on to another site. So they kind of bind on to the alpha-2 component of the GABA-A receptor as well. But they keep the channel open for a super long time because they alter the duration of channel opening. And so those chloride channels just stay open so long that they suppress the limbic system so profoundly. But the other problem is, is that they not only suppress the limbic system, you guys need to know that GABA is one of the most important inhibitory neurotransmitters in our entire CNS. So it not only will inhibit anxiolysis, I mean, not only will it inhibit anxiety, it'll inhibit your level of consciousness. So it can cause sedation to the point of maybe sleep induction to the point where you can actually have a patient almost in an anesthetic or comatose state. So it can really cause a lot of central nervous system depression. And that's one of the biggest problems that there's such a high toxicity and lots of adverse drug reactions that I think the the risk of the drug is way, way higher than the true benefit of it. So we don't really utilize these anymore. Thanks for keeping that relatively PG, Zach. Prior to this recording, everyone, Zach, uh, he gave me some pretty interesting words about barbiturates, and we'll keep them quiet here. But you can tell it's not his favorite type of drug to be utilized. No, you really should not be utilizing these for like anxiolysis or for hypnosis. You'll you'll probably kill them. Um, So I think that that's one of the big things to kind of stay away from. 
from. It's better if you're going to use one, and we'll talk about why a little bit later, to use the benzos. They're likely going to be more important for the anxiolysis, but we just don't use our barbiturates because they're just so toxic and so many adverse effects. They're more utilized in other situations like because they have so much sedation properties and central nervous system depression, we use them more particularly like anticonvulsants, anesthesia, kind of um, putting a patient into like a, a coma because they have such high ICP issues. We just don't commonly utilize it. Uh, hey, man, I just got a little anxiety. I don't want to be put into a coma. No. That's what I would tell my, my clinician. Go easy on me. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you, been, you haven't slept in a while? Don't worry. I'll get you some sleep, baby. <laughs> So I think that's really the important thing to remember. But those are the primary drugs that will increase GABA. And really, I think it's important is that they bind onto the alpha-2 receptor or alpha-2 subunit of the GABA-A receptor in the limbic system and then suppress that limbic system dysfunction, which leads to the decreased kind of anxiety or anxiolytic effect. Benzos, barbiturates, but just stay away from the barbiturates. The primary ones are going to be the benzos, such as alprazolam, lorazepam, oxazepam, clonazepam, and diazepam. Now, that's the drugs that are going to increase the effect of GABA, right? What about the drugs that are going to increase the serotonin activity? That's the big thing because benzos, we'll talk about later, they do have a lot of sense of dependence and uh, they have a high addiction potential, right? They're a controlled substance. So because of that, they do have the potential for addiction and abuse. Um, and I think that's a really important concept to remember. So we really want to try to be able to minimize or reduce the utilization of benzodiazepines for anxiety because there is a risk of a patient maybe using them more frequently or they have to continue to increase their dose to get the same anxiolytic effect because of tolerance to the drug. And that's one of the downsides of it. So for patients who have chronic anxiety, one of the real big things that we have to institute for long-term control of chronic anxiety, especially generalized anxiety disorder, is getting into increasing serotonin activity. So that's going to be drugs such as SSRIs. And we'll talk about this later in antidepressants when we talk about those, because depression and anxiety are very close friends and cousins of one another, to be honest with you. They kind of go hand in hand. But in this situation, if I give SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they're going to inhibit the serotonin reuptake into the neuron, keep more serotonin in the synapse, and then stimulate more of those gabergic neurons to suppress limbic system dysfunction. The other one, and so if I would use those SSRIs, the most commonly utilized ones is like escitalopram, paroxetine, sertraline, and believe it or not, I'm on one of them, baby. I take the sertraline, so it's a very common one to utilize in these patients who, again, have anxiety, chronic anxiety. So Lexapro over here in, in, in <laughs> yeah. this corner. Rob's rocking the escitalopram. <laughs> so so that's the big things for the, the SSRIs. If a patient fails an SSRI, then you can consider a Another one that still increases the serotonin reuptake, I mean, inhibits serotonin reuptake like SNRIs. And these are things like uh, venlafaxine and uh, deloxetine. These have also been shown. And there's one more drug that's also been shown to kind of increase serotonin activity. And they don't know the exact mechanism, but there's a suspicion that it may work to basically stimulate the serotonin receptors. And so there is serotonin receptors on the gabergic neurons. And so if you give them this drug called Buspirone, Buspirone may be able to hit that that serotonin receptor, and then increase gabergic function to suppress limbic system activity. So again, if I want to increase serotonin activity, this is my SSRIs, my SNRIs, and then my Buspirone. But those are going to be the drugs that'll work for more of your chronic anxiety and like generalized anxiety disorders. 
All right, so very, very quick recap here. If we're talking about high GABA drugs, those are your benzos and your barbiturates. And if we're talking about the high serotonin drugs, as Zach just said, we have the SSRIs, SNRIs, and the buspirone. Next thing we're going to be going into now is hypnotics. Yeah, so whenever you're trying to use something like a hypnotic, now you're doing something a little bit different, right? So now you're trying to be able to induce sleep. So a patient has insomnia. The primary disease process behind insomnia is that the patient had a VLPO, right, that was inactive, it wasn't trying to promote sleep in that situation. The reticular formation was on hyperdrive. So they have an increased arousal and wakefulness. So, and then the pathophysiology behind that is that was high orexin, high histamine, low GABA, and then low melatonin. What if I have a drugs, uh, drugs that I can actually increase GABA, increase melatonin, decrease orexin, and decrease histamine? Wouldn't that be a really cool thing? Absolutely. So that's where I'm going to give drugs that'll help to, again, increase GABA. And guess what? We already talked about them because they're used in anxiety. Benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines will bind on to the alpha. Here's the key thing, guys. Alpha-1 subunit of the GABA-A types of receptors present in the structures of the reticular formation. And what they'll do is, is they will really work to, again, suppress the firing of the reticular formation neuron so that they don't promote arousal and wakefulness. Instead, put the patient to sleep. So again, benzodiazepines and barbiturates will really help to bind onto the alpha-1 subunit of the GABA-A receptors, help them to be able to allow for chloride inflow into the reticular formation neurons, suppress the crap out of them, and then suppress arousal and wakefulness and promote sleep. And that's a really cool concept there. So that's one particular thing that we could do. Now, we already talked about the benzodiazepines, right? There is primarily for these two particular drugs that have been shown to be effective in sleep. And this is going to be something called um, florazepam and temazepam. Those have really been the only ones that have been shown to be the most effective for really being able to uh, treat insomnia is florazepam and, again, temazepam. But barbiturates, for the love of goodness, stay away from them, okay? Because, yeah, you may sleep, but you may not ever wake up, okay? Oh, so, my God. So, so just stay away from those particular drugs. Again, we don't really utilize this for patients who have insomnia. Why? Because of high risk of adverse drug reactions, dependence, tolerance, and very high risk of withdrawal. Even the same concept, though, you really try to be careful with utilizing benzodiazepines for uh, patients who have uh, insomnia just because, again, why? It is a, a controlled substance, my friends. It has the ability to cause abuse and addiction. So if people use it for insomnia, again, they may develop a tolerance, increase their dose, increase their dose, and then they become dependent upon it. And then whenever they stop taking it, they withdraw and they can have a lot of problems and rebound insomnia. So that's the big thing. Okay, so we covered benzodiazepines, barbiturates. These were the same ones that treat anxiety, but they also can treat insomnia. There's another drug that acts like a benzodiazepine, but it's not. This is called your Z drugs. And this includes Zolpidem, uh, Zaleplon, and Azopiclone. These are generally going to be the Z drugs. Now, again, one of the interesting concepts is that they, again, bind on to the alpha-1 subunit of the GABA-A receptor. They promote chloride ion influx. And so they will do this to reticular formation, help to suppress the reticular formation, and again, suppress arousal wakefulness and promote sleep. Here's the question that most of you would be asking, though. Can't you use this for anxiety? No. 
Because again, anxiety specifically in the limbic system and the GABA-A receptors have what type of subunit that benzos bind to in that port. But again, Z drugs would not bind to the alpha-2. So benzos have the ability to bind onto the alpha-2 subunit of the GABA-A receptors and the alpha-1 subunit of the GABA-A receptors. That's really important. Z drugs only have the ability to bind onto the alpha-1 subunit of the GABA-A receptors and promote sleep, not to promote anxiolysis. So that's an important thing to remember. These drugs are actually a little bit more preferable than the benzodiazepines. Originally, they were thought, ah, they don't really cause any problems. There's no risk of tolerance or dependence or withdrawal. And that's actually been proven to not necessarily be true. There is potential risk for dependence and tolerance and addiction with these drugs. It's just a little bit less so compared to benzodiazepines. So that's one of the things. Plus, um, there's slightly reduced adverse drug reactions with these particular agents, and they've also been shown not to alter the true components of our sleep cycle. And this is really, really important, my friends. So I really want you to, I'm going to repeat this again. Benzodiazepines actually decrease your REM sleep and increase your non-REM sleep. That's not good. It may help to be able to induce sleep, maintain sleep, you get a longer sleep. But then the actual sleep process where you have REM and non-REM, benzos actually decrease your REM phase and then increase your non-REM phase. And that's not something we want. Whereas with the Z drugs, Zolpidem, Zaleplon, and Azopiclone, these particular drugs have not been shown to alter your non-REM and REM sleep stages. But they do help with sleep induction and some degree of maintenance of sleep, which is really important. All right, so that really kind of hits all the drugs that are particularly going to be used in insomnia to produce hypnosis by increasing GABA. That includes benzodiazepines, barbiturates, but we don't use them, and the Z drugs. Okay, we talked about those. Z drugs, less adverse effects, slightly less dependence, tolerance, withdrawal, and again, not altering the sleep cycle stages. Benzos, good for stress, anxiety-related insomnia, will help for sleep induction and maintenance, but again, more adverse effects, more dependence, more tolerance, more withdrawal, and again, they will decrease your REM and increase your non-REM sleep, so they will alter your sleep cycle, which is not good. All right, what about the drugs that increase melatonin activity? Because if we increase melatonin, again, will help to be able to activate that VLPO, which helps to promote sleep, and then suppress the reticular formation. That's going to be melatonin agonist. So melatonin helps to be able to tell the suprachiasmatic nucleus to turn the VLPO on and turn off the reticular formation. So I want to give drugs that actually will act like that. And this is where we give a drug called Remelteon. Remelteon binds onto the melatonin receptors, helps to be able to cause the suprachiasmatic nucleus to then say, oh, okay. I, melatonin is present, basically. I'm going to go ahead and turn the VLPO on so that I can produce sleep, and then I'm going to suppress the reticular formation so that they won't stay awake. Uh, all right, and so that is the big concept with this drug. Remelteon, I have seen some degree of benefit with this drug, but I think one of the really important things here is that melatonin is important for your circadian rhythm. So if a person is having a problem with being able to kind of regulate their circadian rhythm, maybe they're having a real like significant difficulty falling asleep, this may be a great drug to induce sleep, primarily for sleep induction. So you take it about 30 to 45 minutes before you plan on trying to go to sleep. All right, so that's the ones that increase melatonin activity. There's a newer set of drugs that have been shown to potentially be beneficial. We don't have enough info on this, but what we know is, is that the reticular formation, whenever it is active, 
it releases orexins and orexins suppress the VLPO. It turns it off. And so it says, oh, VLPO, you ain't on, baby. So you can't promote sleep. And so I'm going to be super active. My reticular formation is going to be crazy active. I'm going to stay awake. What if I gave a drug that blocked orexin? And so if I block orexin, I don't allow for it to turn the VLPO off. I keep the VLPO on, which will suppress my reticular formation. That's going to be a drug called suvorexant. We don't have enough info on this, but it may be helpful in sleep induction and maintenance as well. The last one here is again, high histamine activity. So when your reticular formation is super active, it also, again, not only does it release orexins, but it releases histamines. And histamines turn the VLPO off, so you won't be able to sleep. And if the VLPO is off, if I can't sleep, that's a problem, right? And the reticular formation stays super activated when it's able to release histamine. So what if I gave drugs that block histamine or decrease the histamine activity? That may be able to, again, keep the VLPO on, which suppresses the reticular formation, promotes sleep, and decreases your you know, arousal and wakefulness. Well, this is where you can actually have a benefit or an advert, a benefit of the adverse effects of another drug. So, um, believe it or not, if you've ever been, to, you know, really trying to fall asleep and you tried diphenhydramine, good old Benadryl, uh, you may become very tired and sleepy and that may be able to promote hypnosis. That's a side effect of the actual drug. Because again, what is, what is diphenhydramine? It's an antihistamine. So it binds onto the histamine receptor and blocks histamine from binding. So therefore, I won't be able to, again, act, uh, inactivate that VLPO. I keep it active now, and then I'll keep my reticular formation off. So you can use diphenhydramine there. Another one is actually a benefit of other antidepressants. So sometimes if a patient has depression, right, they can use something called trazodone or mirtazapine. And what these drugs have actually been shown is that they specifically, they have serotonin activity. So they help to be able to increase serotonin binding to the particular serotonin receptors. We call them 5-HT1 receptors. Don't get too bogged down in that. But they help to be able to increase serotonin to treat depression, right? But the other benefit to these drugs is that they also have ability to bind on to histamine receptors, and block the actual histamine at that particular receptor. So trazodone and mirtazapine, even though it has enhancing serotonin activities, it also can block histamine from binding on to the histamine receptors. And so it has an antihistamine type of function. And so that's one of the benefits of these drugs. And I've actually come to become very fond of trazodone and to some degree mirtazapine for patients. Um, and we'll talk about those more in the antidepressants podcast. But these are the drugs, again, that'll help to decrease histamine. Adverse effects of one of them, diphenhydramine, true benefit to uh, drugs that actually increase serotonin, but also block histamine, trazodone, as well as mirtazapine. And that covers the hypnotic agents. All right. Here's just a quick summary of what we've talked about with the mechanism for our hypnotics. Don't forget about those high GABA drugs. Again, these are your benzos, barbiturates, and the new category we talked about being the Z drugs. Next one, high melatonin drugs, Romelteon, Orexin antagonist, Suvorexant. And then what Zach just talked about is our histamine antagonist. These include diphenhydramine, oh, I love me some Benadryl, <laughs> trazodone, and mirtazapine, which both of those are really have serotonin activity. So kind of an awesome benefit there. Next thing we got to do is we're going to move into the really the approach to treating anxiolysis and 
insomnia. Yeah, and I think that this has kind of already been covered to some degree, but I think it's a good reminder and a repetition-based kind of learning here is that whenever you're treating a patient who has anxiety, right, what's the what's the best drug? Like we talked about a bunch of them. We talked about benzodiazepines. We talked about barbiturates, which is not a good one. And we talked about drugs that increase serotonin, like the SSRIs, SNRIs, or Buspirone. Well, how do I know which one to use? So generally, benzodiazepines are good for acute anxiety attacks. So if a patient's having a lot of anxiety, right, these are good drugs that really help to kind of like calm them down and get them kind of settled down a little bit. And then what you do is after you start them on something like alprazolam, lorazepam, oxazepam, clonazepam, diazepam, one of those, you start them also if they have chronic anxiety such as GAD or SAD or PAD or phobias, you can then start them on an SSRI or an SNRI. So that included, again, which one? The escitalopram, the paroxetine, the citrulline for the SSRIs, the venlafaxine, and the duloxetine for the SNRIs. So you can start them on one of those two particular drugs. Only downside is it takes up to four to six weeks for these drugs to kick in. And so you start them on the benzodiazepine to kind of get them through the tough parts. And as the SSRI and the SNRI kicks in, hopefully you'll be able to reduce the amount of utilization of that benzodiazepine to just PRN. So for breakthrough panic attacks or breakthrough kind of anxiety attacks is really the indication of those. Which you said for your benzos, you should really only be using that consistently for, was it two weeks? Yeah. Generally, if you're going to, if you're using these drugs daily at high doses for more than two weeks, you already have a risk of dependence. Okay. And so that's why generally it can take up to four to six weeks for the drug, for the SSRI, the SNRI to kick in. So what we prefer to do is try the benzodiazepines and really just try to use this on a PRM basis. Don't really try to use high doses every single day at all times. Really use it when you're having these breakthrough anxiety attacks. And that's really when it's going to come to. And then afterwards, after you get the SSRI and the S or the SNRI on board, the patient should not have as many of this kind of constant anxiety. And then really the, the anything that breaks through that, then you can use that PRN benzodiazepine for that. But really, you really want to try to minimize benzodiazepine use because of the high addiction potential because it's not really a great long-term option. You don't want to keep using this for a long-term. Now, the other question is, okay, Zach, what about the Boosbrone? Could I use that instead? of like an SSRI or an SNRI, you could, it just hasn't been shown to be as effective. One of the things I like to use this for is an alternative to benzodiazepines. So if a patient is on a benzodiazepine, right, I'll use it for the acute anxiety still to kind of get them up aboard an SSRI and SNRI. So I'll start the <clears throat> SSRI or the SNRI, have them take the benzodiazepine for kind of a, a acute type of PRM basis. Once the SSRI or the SNRI has kind of gotten to the, the therapeutic level that I want it, what I prefer to do is get rid of the benzodiazepine and use something like Buspirone. Just because if a patient has a high addiction potential, that's a really scary thing that I want to use. And I'll prefer to use Buspirone because it doesn't have this kind of a dependence or abuse potential. And so I'll kind of use that as an alternative to a benzodiazepine. But that's really my approach to anxiolysis, Rob. All right. So in summary, our discussion on the approach to anxiolysis, if we're having to try and differentiate between an acute anxiety or a chronic anxiety. If it's acute, you start with your benzodiazepine. But if it's chronic, you want to try and use a benzodiazepine short term because in order to bridge that over to a chronic therapy like an SSRI or an SNRI, that might take four to six weeks. So you want to try and use that sparingly again because it does have that addictive effect. But again, you want to make sure to try and use that short term benzodiazepines 
bridging that to an SSRI, SNRI. Again, benzos should not be used daily. This should be absolutely used PRM. And then finally, your other intervention you could use is buspirone. All right, Zach, so next up, we have to talk about really your your approach and what are the best drugs to use for each type of insomnia. So yeah, when we talk about you know hypnosis, right? So you're trying to treat insomnia. Generally, I like to look at it in a couple of different ways. So am I trying to treat like a stress or anxiety-related insomnia? If that's the case, I think benzodiazepines may be a good option there. Just again, taking into consideration, yes, they do potentially cause sleep cycle alterations. They do have a high dependence addiction potential. And so they're not a great long-term option. But if I'm using it for PRN, sleep, anxiety, kind of uh, anxiety and kind of stress-related insomnia, they may be a decent option. But I should try my best to consider other alternatives for any kind of mild to moderate kind of insomnia that's maybe not so much stress or anxiety related. I think Z drugs tend to be a pretty good option here. So take into consideration, again, the Zolpidem, the Zaleplon, and the Zopiclone. These particularly are good drugs that have no significant high adverse drug reaction, addiction potential or tolerance or dependence in comparison to benzos. They do have that, but much, much less, and they don't alter that sleep cycle. So that's a really kind of benefit to these particular drugs. If I'm using it for like sleep induction for a patient who's having a problem with their circadian rhythms, and I just want to reset their circadian rhythm and help them to get to sleep, I think melatonin agonists may be good for that one. So Remelteon, And the other situation is if I have a patient who has a lot of like depression, anxiety, um, that's more chronic and then potentially insomnia also associated with that. I've found a pretty decent benefit to drugs like the um, atypical antidepressants. So again, that's the ones that increase serotonin to treat depression, but also have antihistamine function. So trazodone as well as mirtazapine. So those are the approaches that I take to treating hypnosis. And that's something I found to be a benefit. All right. So in summation here, we have the approach to hypnosis. Let's go down a list here. For stress, anxiety, related insomnia, benzos. For mild to moderate insomnia, Z-drugs, for sleep induction, Remelteon, and then for depression or anxiety-related insomnia, we have Mirtazapine and Trazodone. Next up, we have some adverse drug reactions that we have to talk for anxiolytics and hypnotics. Zach, take it away. So yeah, when I talk about adverse drug reactions of particularly drugs that are particularly anxiolytic and hypnotics, I really want to spend more time talking about barbiturates and also benzodiazepines because they're the ones that I think have potential adverse drug reactions, which are really ones that you want to remember for your exam and even in, in life. Z drugs, yes, they have some degree of adverse drug reactions, but usually it's just like residual drowsiness, maybe some degree of sedation um, in the morning. So again, it depends upon which one you use as well. So Zolpidem tends to be a little bit longer acting. Zopaclone tends to be a little bit longer acting. So you may have some residual type of drowsiness and sedation in the morning and some slight cognitive dysfunction in the morning, but nothing crazy. Melatonin receptor agonists, just remember they can bump up your prolactin a little bit. So they may cause males to slightly develop gynecomastia, which is not obviously attractive or potentially cause hyperlactation in women. So that's another particular consideration. Orexin antagonists, we don't know a ton about, um, but there has been thoughts that it may have a lot of drug-drug interaction and potential suicidal ideation. So that's not a great thing as well. But um, that tends to be the big things to remember for some of those. Um, 
When we talk more specifically, though, we should really focus on benzos and barbiturates. So with benzos and barbiturates, again, they have a lot of CNS depression, right? They really help to increase GABA activity. When you help to increase GABA activity, GABA is the most prominent inhibitory neurotransmitter in our central nervous system. And so that's really, really important. So if you think about it in our spinal cord, you can suppress GABA activity, which can have muscle relaxant activity. You can suppress the brainstem, the reticular formation, right? So you can obviously promote hypnosis. You can suppress the medullary cons- uh, control centers. So this can lead to hypotension because it controls your cardiovascular system and your respiratory system. So it can cause hypotension. It can also cause decreasing heart rate. It can cause respiratory depression. It can suppress your limbic system activity, so it can cause anxiolysis. It can even suppress your cortical activity, so it can have anticonvulsant and um, anesthetic types of properties or comatose properties. And so that's really, really important. But when you compare benzodiazepines and barbiturates, benzos have a ceiling effect. In other words, they're, they're able to have anticonvulsant, muscle relaxant, uh, anxiolytic properties, hypnotic properties, in some degree, anesthetic properties. But barbiturates, these things have no ceiling effect. In other words, the higher the dose you continue to increase of your barbiturate, it can cause anxiolysis, it can cause anticonvulsant, it can cause muscle relaxant, it can cause hypnosis, it can cause anesthesia, it can lead to medullary depression, you won't breathe, can't pump blood out of your heart, and it can even put a person into a comatose state. And so there is a lot of CNS depression with barbiturates, way more so in comparison to benzodiazepines, and that's a really significant thing to remember. The other component here besides CNS depression is dependence or addiction or abuse potential because barbiturates, they have much stronger dependence. So they will kind of cause potentially whenever they act on these GABA-A receptors and they increase the duration of action barbiturates, they can really cause the patients to require higher doses to be able to maintain the same therapeutic effect. And that's a really, really bad thing. And they can become dependent upon that. So if you ever have the patient stop taking a barbiturate, they can really, really have a lot of rebound types of effects, insomnia, anxiety, anticonvulsant activity, et cetera. Benzodiazepines, they also have dependence and abuse potential. So the same concept, if you're using it pretty consecutively, the patient may require higher doses to maintain the same anxiolytic, hypnotic, or anesthetic, or whatever it may be effects. And if you kind of stop that abruptly, they'll have a lot of rebound symptoms. And so that's really, really important. The other thing is um, drug interactions. So sometimes there's a lot of cytochrome P450 metabolism. And I think the real crux of this here is the barbiturates. They are powerful, powerful cytochrome P450 inducers, meaning that they can really decrease the efficacy of other drugs in their concentration. And that's a really, really bad thing for these. Benzodiazepines have a slightly less degree of cytochrome P450 induction, but again, barbiturates are really, really bad. So they cause a lot of drug-drug interactions. So you can already see why we don't use these dang things. They have massive CNS depression. They have a high degree of dependence, abuse potential, and they have a high degree of drug-drug interaction. 
The last thing that I want to talk about is overdose because if a patient becomes dependent upon these and they have to keep taking higher doses because they become tolerant to the dose that they're at, they keep taking and taking and taking and they take beyond the dose that they should, what would that look like if they take too much of a benzo or too much of a barbiturate? Well, obviously you're going to see a significant degree of CNS depression. This may just be them being a little bit more fatigued. It could be them being a little bit more altered. It could be them actually being in a comatose state, my friends. So that's a really, really bad thing. It can cause respiratory depression where they're not breathing, they're apneic. It can cause their blood pressure to be lower. It can cause their heart rate to be lower. And that's a really scary thing to see in a, in a barbiturate or a benzodiazepine overdose. My question to you is what do you do if you have a patient who you think is having a benzodiazepine overdose? You give them flumazenil. Barbiturates, it's just supportive care. The last thing is if a patient has been taking benzodiazepines or barbiturates for a long time, they become dependent to it and you just abruptly discontinue their barbiturate or abruptly discontinue their benzodiazepine, what can happen? They can develop all the rebound effects. Now you're no longer suppressing their anxiety. They're going to become anxious and irritable. You're no longer suppressing their seizure activity potentially. They can develop seizures. That's a really scary thing. You're no longer suppressing their heart and respiratory system. They can become hypertensive and tachycardic and they can breathe really fast. You're now causing them to have anxious, sympathetic responses. They start having tremors. They start having a lot of diaphoresis. And so these are withdrawal symptoms to barbiturates as well as to opioids. And generally, when a patient is withdrawing more specifically from a benzodiazepine, you just have to make sure that you start slowly tapering down their benzodiazepine. So you're unfortunately going to have to start them back on the benzodiazepine, something long acting like diazepam is a great one, and then slowly taper down that dose so that they can actually become a little bit more kind of accommodating to that. You don't just cause this rebound phenomenon. Same thing with barbiturates. You may have to just taper down their dose very, very slowly. But that's the big things that I want you to know about for the adverse drug reactions. All right. So final summary here of our adverse drug reactions of anxiolytics and hypnotics. So for CNS depression, this is highest with barbiturates, even more so than benzos. For dependence or abuse, highest with barbiturates, even more so than benzos. Drug interactions, the cytochrome P450 inducers, highest with barbiturates in, a, in comparison to benzos. You're seeing a trend here. Overdose, benzos and barbiturates. So we have CNS depression, bradycardia, hypotension, respiratory depression. Treatment is going to be flumazenil only for benzodiazepines. Withdrawal-like symptoms, those are going to be related to our benzos and barbiturates. Anxiety, irritability, worst case scenario is seizures, hypertension, tachycardia, diaphoresis, and tremors. The treatment for this is taper the benzodiazepines. All right, Zach, thank you very much for this awesome podcast. No, thank you. And, I, and again, I hope you guys all enjoyed this uh, podcast on anxiolytics and hypnotics. And I think, again... 
big thing to kind of recap is go back and listen to the podcast maybe a couple times. Also, go and check out the notes and illustrations. Follow along with me with some of the diagrams so that you guys can have a better understanding of what we're talking about because sometimes it's hard to visualize what we're talking about. And so use that to your advantage. But I really hope it made sense. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys got the big points to take away and use this in your exams as well as in practice. But thank you guys so much for listening and love you. Thank you. And as always, until next time.